Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Catch Caught podcast. This week, we have the lovely Monica Wild on. She is a forager and herbalist and is currently uh, undergoing the Wild Biome Project, as well as um, having a book, The Wilderness Cure. And she is here today to share her nature stories. So how's your day been today, Mo Wild? Oh, hello. It's been great, thank you. It's been a beautiful sunny day. I spent a lot of the time drying seaweed, <laughs> which I foraged on the very low tide yesterday. And so the um, the grass around where I am is sort of festooned with bits of seaweed hanging everywhere and drying on the grass. And the windowsills are full of racks of things drying. <laughs> mm. Lovely. And what in particular are you foraging at the moment on the shores? Um, mainly sea lettuce, which is one of the green seaweeds mm. that because it's been warm, it's actually grown to quite a size. Um, you know, sometimes that takes longer than the others because green seaweeds, of course, are um, not really related to brown seaweeds. I mean, we're we're as closely related to green seaweeds as brown seaweeds are, amazingly. Hmm. it's amazing isn't it I and then also pepper dulse and um young sugar kelp and or weed and then tomorrow i'm going to go for dulse mm. lovely um and for anybody new to seaweed foraging are there certain times of the year where there's more bounty or is this a really good time spring yeah, spring's a really good time. I mean, I start. I tend to start from picking from January, February, but my, you know, the best months are sort of March and April, and that's when this, a lot of the seaweed is at its best. You know, it's got a beautiful crunch, al, al dente sort of crunchy bite to it. Some of the flavors are amazing. You know, a lot of people think seaweed just would all be like fishy and salty, but it's not at all. You know, there's there's truffle, there's iron, there's spice, there's um, neutral flavors. There's there's all sorts of different flavors in there. Mm. And um, the trouble is, once you get past May, the seaweed is all reproduced and gone a bit slimy, and then it sort of dies back for the summer. And unfortunately, a lot of people's only experience of seaweed is going to the beach in the summer. When as far as the seaweed's concerned, it's all over. And they just got to step over piles of sort of rotting seaweed with flies around it. And they're like, ugh, you know, but they don't realize that what you want to eat is picked, you know, a few months earlier when it's absolutely gorgeous. Mm. Wow. And would you say as well, like the land plants at the sea, are they as nutritious? Um. Possibly not in the same way. I mean, you know, all life evolved from the sea at one stage. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, seaweed is nature's know, ultimate multivitamin. Mm. You know, it contains iodine, for instance, which a lot of the land plants don't contain. It contains B12, which a lot of the land plants don't contain either. So it really has, it's got lots of amino acids. It's got lots of trace elements. You know, it's really got a bit of everything in it. Mm. I was eating um samphire last night just with butter and salt steamed and it was like oh my goodness we couldn't get enough of it and um some we made like a bladder rack smoothie 
mm. which was quite nice. Um, uh, that that must have been um, was that um, Samphire that you'd kept from last year then, because it's not out until June. Not out on the rocks, you mean? Um, Sam, are you talking about like marsh samphire or, or rock samphire? Rock. Oh, the rock samphire. Yes, I've seen rock samphires just been just been coming out over the last few weeks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and golden samphire. It's amazing, amazing. Um, we all were like, oh, we should have got more. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and yeah, and would you have seaweed like for your diet for nutrition? Like, is there a certain amount of times a week you'd have it, or? Yeah, I think you should you should eat seaweed at least once every two to three days. Mm -hmm. um, what's really interesting is that sea the iodine that's in seaweed is locked into the the seaweed itself, what's called the seaweed matrix. And so when you've eaten some, it takes three days to leave your body. If you take it as a if you take potassium iodide as a supplement, it takes three hours to leave your body. So if you just take a supplement every day. You've got it for three hours and then nothing. Whereas if you have a little bit of seaweed every two to three days, you've always got a gentle rolling supply of iodine to your thyroid, which mm -hmm. of course is the, you know, the master switch of the metabolism of your metabolism. You know, it's the controller that controls every biochemical reaction in your body. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like really important. It runs on time, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, and you're currently undergoing the Biome Project with many other amazing people. Um, can you tell me a bit about that or how you came yeah. up with the idea? Well, it really came out because um, a couple of years ago, I spent a year living on wild food only. And that came about because I've been teaching foraging for about 16 years. And people would always say... Um, well, you know, this is all very well, but could you actually live on wild food as opposed to just adding, yeah, you know, adding a little bit of wild garlic to a pesto or putting some cherry blossom in a cake? And um, and it just, you know, it just seemed like a good time to do it. Um, I had a little bit more time because COVID had sort of kicked in. Kids had left home, so I didn't have to pretend everything was chicken. <laughs> and um, and also, I was a bit. Um, you know, I was, a, I was a little bit disturbed by everybody's sort of reaction to coming out of lockdown because it seemed that during lockdown, people had become a lot more aware of nature and that had raised my hope that if enough people had switched on, we would be able to do something to, you know, preserve the, you know, this beautiful planet that we live on and the wildlife and everything that we've got. But by the end of the year, it was sort of, it seemed that everybody, that that was a short-lived interest. So I did it for a year. And during that, I tested my gut microbes every couple of months because I was interested to see what would happen. And, you know, the results were really interesting because my gut moved around a lot. There was a huge amount of seasonality. Gut, you know, microbes would appear from nowhere. Um, but at the end of it, all of the people at the lab were able to tell me was, um, well, it's different. We don't normally see this in people. You know, you've got this sort of this gut that's like a super responder. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't a super responder in a negative way. I mean, you know, I was regular all the way through. Mm -hmm. um, 
and also even even if they'd been able to um tell more what was going on there was no control no bigger study which makes it hard to prove anything science-wise you know a case of one person you know they say you know one swallow doesn't make a summer (laughs) well one person doesn't make a scientific study Mm -hmm. so um you know i mean i've actually been sort of prepping, planning and prepping this for about a year, trying to get um, universities and institutions interested in doing it. And then eventually um, Tim Spector at ZOE agreed that, um, you know, that they would sponsor part of the study and then recruiting 25 other crazy people to do it with me. (laughs) And um, so we've got some, we've got one cohort, half the people are doing it for one month and the other half of the people are doing it for three months. And we've been testing the um, blood sugar response, um, cholesterol, you know, blood fat and cholesterol, um, gut microbiome, obviously, and blood nutrition status and hormones at the beginning of the project and at the end of the project as well. So we're not doing, we didn't raise enough money to do intermediary gut testing, microbe testing, which would have shown some sort of seasonality. But what it will show is, um, you know, what happens to your gut and your body and your health if you eat wild food. And I I personally think it's really important because, you know, in this um you know, in the British Isles and in Ireland, I think a lot of people think that foraging is either a bit of a yuppie thing or a bit of a middle class thing that chefs do or, yeah. you know, but, you know, there are parts of, you know, many, many parts of the world where people still rely on wild food for their nutrition. Yeah. Because when you look at what people eat on a day to day basis, you know, 50 percent of the entire world's daily calorie intake comes from three species, wheat, corn and rice and those in my book are winter plants you know if you looked at um you know if you look at wheat in nature you you know you cut cut the wheat down at the end of the summer you've got plenty of other things to eat so you store it and then in the winter when there's no food left you eat it over the winter but by the end of the winter it would have been over Mm -hmm. and then you have a natural gluten-free period until the you know, the end of the summer, at least again, if not into the autumn. Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't meant to eat the same things every day. Mm. So um, it'll be really interesting to see what everybody's results are at the end, mm. not just from the gut microbiome, but cholesterol levels, blood sugar levels, you know, and weight. I mean, I know that, you know, when I was, um, when I did it for the year, I, you know, I went back to the same size I was when I was like in my 20s, <laughs> which is saying something because I'm nearly 60 now and, you know, I'd got to be the heaviest that I'd ever been. But I felt really healthy and full of energy. felt great. Wow. I'm surprised with your age. I'm like, wow, you know, you look young, like super young. Um, and I'm sure that it's definitely due to your diet and lifestyle um and again I totally agree with that I think across the world like I've stayed with different communities and visited different tribes and it's so normal to go out into the fields and climb up the banana tree and pick the bananas and 
to live off the land and then you come back here and if you're like in the ditch doing something they're like what is, what is she doing you know they're like <laughs> what are you doing and I'm like it's free food like <laughs> um it's that like it's like learning that there is like a supermarket on our roads and like relearning all of that not being I think there's a lot of fear you know um Yes, there is a lot of fear. I mean, people do talk about, oh, you know, I'd be worried about picking something that was poisonous and so on. But, um, you know, I'm more worried about the poisons that you can buy in supermarkets. I know. <laughs> I know. And for you, as experienced going out and picking and collecting, like for you, what do you feel like happens to your mind and body when you're actually foraging and collecting? Because it is a real primal thing and grounding, right? Yeah, it's a very primal thing. I mean, psych psychologically, it's really good for you because it roots you in the present. There is nothing that absorbs you so much as you know looking for looking for food. Mm. You know, picking you know wild cherries off a tree, or you know wild mulberries if you're in the south, or looking for mushrooms. You know, you become. You know, I think it's such a natural, it's so so hardwired into our sort of DNA that you, in that moment, that is all you care about, you know. And I noticed this early on when I was teaching foraging. You know, people would, at the beginning of it, they'd say like, oh, you know, how, how can you see, where, how did you see that mushroom? How did you see that mushroom? But, you know, by the end of a couple of hours, they're seeing mushrooms everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Because their, their focus is there. Mm. And then they would be, you know, you come to the end of sort of three or four hours and people would go like, oh, my God, you know, time's gone so quickly. Mm. And they forgot to look at their phones. Um, they felt, you know, a lot of people would say, gosh, you know, I've, I haven't felt like this since I was a child. Mm. You know, when you're in the moment, when you're in that liminal space of just being in the present, it's such a joyful place to be because you have, you know, no past, no future worries, you know, you're not thinking about your, you know, social media influencer profile or your emails from work or whether or not your boss is emailing you at the weekend yet again. You know, you are just there in that moment. Mm. And that brings joy. Yeah. And being given food, um, you know, going round into a small glade and suddenly finding a host of golden chanterelles twinkling in the sunlight, you know, um, you you feel gratitude, and those that creates a very different mindset to, you know, what most of us experience on a day to day basis. Yeah, and I I think that thing not that it's a struggle, but I really feel like the little challenge of going out finding something, it activates that sense of, you know, the reward center that dopamine. Because like mm -hmm. imagine walking into a shop and you're looking at cardboard and plastic like. It's like we need to realize that that affects us way, way, way more than we even know, you know, than we can even understand. Um, yeah, it's amazing. And and I you hear people say that all the time, like, I haven't felt like this since a child. And it's like that gap of when you're 10 to when people become 30, 40, 50. It's like, oh, my God, have I just not been present? You know, yes. yeah. and it's like we need to go back there. So that's amazing work you're doing. Um, and your book would you tell me a little bit about the book well the book really follows the story of the year that I was living only on wild food yeah um 
but it's not just about foraging. You know, it it does record, you know, what I was it what I was eating and what I was finding. But it gave me the opportunity to um talk about all the things that I'm passionate about, our relationship with nature, what we're doing in this world, um, what we're doing with our waste. Um, you know, because we did have an in- indigenous heritage too. Um, so it covers a lot of different subjects. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I think it was if it was the one book I was ever going to write, I was going to cram it all into that one. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's woven all of the stories and, you know, areas that I explore are woven together by this thread of, and, you know, here we are today, you know, rooted in this world where we must eat, we must drink, and this is what I'm eating and drinking. Mm. And for you, like, did you have a period of disconnection with nature or were you always out in the wild looking at things? Or Oh, no, I, I, I've had periods, um, you know, engaged with the battle of trying to make a living and bring up children. You know, I brought up three children on my own in a community that I was new to. Um, well, it took me a long time to find community. So, um, and that was a, you know, really, really hard, hard battle. The amount of time you would just go go to bed with three children and all of you would weep, you know, it was like, it was tough. Mm. And, you know, you didn't have a lot of time to be, you know, to get out there all the time. But even so in the summers, you know, we'd head off to the highlands and see how long we could live without going to a shop and, you know, find that little cove where mussels and you could make, you know, cook the mussels on a hot rock and then wrap them with chanterelles in sea lettuce and roast little parcels of deliciousness. <laughs> wow. Amazing. And have your kids, any of them followed along the path or, you know? I'm not, not the boys, but my daughter teaches um, forest bathing. Oh, and no, and just loves being outdoors. And they all they all like being outdoors. Yeah. And your home is Scotland. My home, my my home is Scotland. Yeah, my adopted home is Scotland. Beautiful. I travelled around a lot when I was younger because my my parents moved around a lot, and my grandparents before them. Mm-hmm. My grandmother was Irish, oh. um, but she was born in India. Oh my goodness! That's because her father was working. Her father was working out on the railways or something. So she was Irish, but um, born in India. And um, yeah, super interesting. Wow. Yeah, and then she married an Englishman, and then went um, went to live in um, East Africa, Kenya, and East Africa in the nineteen thirties. He was in soil conservation. Um, which is very um, ironic now because I read some of the things he would write about and the things he warned about that would happen if we didn't take care of the forests and the trees, Mm. you know, the the famine and deforestation and things, you know, all of that has happened. Yeah. And how do you, what are your thoughts on the soil and, you know, this number of harvests we may have left and what's your kind of thoughts on that? We could all change it. Mm. We, we, you know, we have the power to change it. Mm. We've just got to find enough of us who care. Mm. 
-hmm. you know, to take. I mean, you know, we 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 all feel as individuals, we all feel fairly sort of powerless against the institutions and the government, you know, the, the politics, the governments, all the rest of it. But you know, imagine that. I mean, imagine if. Um, so I'm just near Malahide at the moment, you know, and, and imagine if I if I could get a campaign going in Malahide or even the whole of Dublin, mm. where we said, okay, for the entire month of May, if you go to the supermarket and you leave. All the packaging that's not re that's not biodegradable um, at the till, and just took your own boxes and things and took everything home. Left all the packaging at the till, and everybody did that. Don't you think they'd require their suppliers to have properly biodegradable packaging immediately overnight? Mm. You know, if if all of us refused to take part in it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, I know it's, you know, those sorts of things are hard mm. um, to get people passionate about. But if enough of us were passionate about changing things, mm. you know, including the soils. Yeah. It's, um, you know, the whole question of food is really, really loaded. but And it's become a very emotional subject as well. And... Um, you know, I'd be the first one to agree that, you know, intensive animal farming is, you know, is really, is really bad. And I wouldn't eat, you know, meat that had been farmed in that way. But intensive plant farming is also as bad mm -hmm. um, because it strips, you know, it strips the soil. And we need to go back to um, finding ways that are also in harmony with the earth. And a lot of that is by, well, trying to re-engage with local farmers, local suppliers, you know, local food markets and things, and also about foraging. You know, and people say to me, oh, well, you know, if everybody foraged, there wouldn't be enough. You know, well, there might not be enough chicken of the woods in May for everyone to have one. But, you know, I, I don't hear anybody saying there's a shortage of nettles. No. You know? And nettles are a superfood. If you had to fly nettles in from the Amazon, I mean, everybody would be fighting over them. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and only just earlier there, um, I was collecting like wood chip and I saw a guy come along in his lawnmower thing driving it and I could see him with the spray thing and he was covered in a white suit with a luminous jacket and I was like, oh, my God, like my heart started pounding. I was like, no, like this can't be happening. And my gut instinct was like, go over there right now and stop him, you know. And then, of course, the mind comes in and it's like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? He's just going to tell you to go away because I've done it a couple of times. And I was like, no, no, I'm actually going to do it because I have bees and this is not fair. And all the insects and everything, you know, everything. Mm. So I went over anyway and I was like, right, I'm going to go in gentle. Um, cause the last time I got like eaten um but anyway and I just said look I said I'm just curious there are you spraying and he was like oh yeah spraying um oh it was actually his work colleague he's like oh that was my boss he's just spraying weeds and I said okay I said just because we're like foraging and you know getting food to eat and I said you're you're putting chemicals on the ground just being a little bit dumb <laughs> you know mm. but he was like oh yeah oh yeah 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 I'll, I'll, I'll say it to him and I said yeah and you know there's like insects he was like I know loads of people are coming over and they're complaining and their dogs are putting their heads in it and da, da, da. And I said okay and like 
I said, look, will you just put in a complaint? Because this is ridiculous. And he said, everybody's worried. And he kind of didn't really know what to say, but he was kind of on my side, you know, about it. But he said he'd put in the complaint. But even doing that step, you know, even though it was uncomfortable for me, I just said, you know, even doing that step. And um, like, it was just mad looking at him in the white suit, glasses, the overalls, like totally protected and just spraying. And you know what was on the ground? Like ivy on a bar and you know like these rail railings i was like like what doesn't none of it makes sense you know i mean i've seen people spraying like that round the slides and swings in children's playgrounds it's you know funny. and we wonder why you know one in two people get cancer mm. you know we're being very very slow to respond yeah, but you're right. You know, and that where where what made the difference in your case was that he said, "Yeah, quite a lot of people have said, yeah, you know, yeah. if we if we if everybody who cared spoke up, mm. if we all refused to be silent, not in an aggressive way, yeah, but if we all refused to be silent anymore, mm. you know, that that gives us the power to change, yeah." And even there was a couple of my neighbours now were cutting lawns. And I said, oh, could I actually go in first and pick the dandelions? Because if you're cutting, might it? and I was explaining because they love sharp mm. lawns. And I was explaining, oh, my God, these are like medicine and these are this and these are that. And then they were like, oh, oh really? Oh. You know, and like it's like maybe those slow little steps might influence in some way, you know. Mm. And I've infused them now with honeys and stuff and I've shown them and they're like, oh, like you when we made that like oh, could I have some <laughs> I'm like maybe stop putting your lawn <laughs> but I was like these little steps of like what can happen if you actually left it you know yeah well if you get young dandelion roots and just scrub them you don't need to peel them and then get parsnips and just cut them into strips around the same size as your dandelion roots and then put them in an oven dish with a little bit of olive oil Mm. And then just drizzle a little bit of maple syrup or honey over them. Mm. And then some parmesan, grated parmesan and some black pepper. Yeah. Everybody would be wanting dandelion roots. That is delicious. Wow. And for anybody listening who hasn't foraged for dandelion, is there a certain way to get the root out or how would you recommend? Like, can they pull? Do they need to shovel? Do they need to? Oh, you need a you need a spade, really. You know, they go down deep and they bring up a lot of minerals. You know, so they're very rich in minerals. Um, and I mean, they do love growing by the side of roads, mm. but you just need to be careful about the sides of roads because they're often very polluted. So you need to find a nice little quiet lane um, or a field, and you'll have to get permission from the landowner to dig for roots. Okay, because although you can forage. Um, you know, any, you know, wild things um, off land. Um, if you're digging things up by the root, you do need the landowner's permission. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just take a, yeah, a fairly long spade. You know, one of those long, thin spades is the best. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get hand tools that are like sort of very long trowels, but I find that I always break the handle off eventually. <laughs> yeah, break iron. <laughs> And then just loosen the if you you know loosen the soil around it on two or three sides, and then just put your hand down as far as it will go and give a good tug. And it doesn't matter if you leave the root, you know, the the tip of the root in; it'll just grow again. Mm-hmm. It'll be there for the next year. Lovely. 
Yummy. But it's much easier to dig them than burdock roots because burdock roots, they you know, they're about sort of a an inch, inch and a half thick. Uh, but they go down like a meter. <laughs> so you're only, you know, and you dig and you dig and you dig and you're lucky to get about a foot of it. Wow. And does that come back again quite yeah. well? Yeah. All, all of those things are used to, you know, if a bit of the root's chopped off, the root, as long as there's some still down there, it'll keep going again. Yeah. And I, remember, are... yeah. I remember my father took a rotavator over a field that had had horseradish, a few horseradish plants in it. And, of course, the rotavator chopped it all into little bits and he sowed so it. then had a field of horseradish. <laughs> oh, nature always comes back. Well, yes, to remediate the soil. And, you know, nettles and thistles and dock, they, you know, they're the big soil remediators. So wherever you have poor land mm. or land that's trying to get back to, um, you know, out of a brownfield site or out of a sort of derelict area or scrapped area or poor soil area, you know, they recondition the soil. They're like, you know, they are to the herbaceous plants as birch trees are to the forest. Mm. And then after six or seven, eight years, you know, they naturally give way to all of the other plants because they prepared the soil for them. Mm. And which is why it's so unfortunate when somebody has a big waste, you know, big field of nettles and dots and thistles, and then they suddenly decide to make a wildflower meadow and cut it down just as it was about to turn into a meadow all on its own. And of course, as soon as you cut it down and plow up the plow it up then you're going to get nettles and docks and thistles starting all over again from scratch. And so how many years would it actually take, do you think, Aprox? If you left them, if you left the land alone? Yeah. Between six and eight, depending on the, the climate and things, between six and eight. Mm. But you'll know you'll notice if you watch a piece of land, if you're lucky enough to have a little piece of land to watch, that it'll um yeah, that it'll create its own little habitats and environments i mean at home where i am i'm on a four acre plot and it covers lots of different i don't really garden all i do is just manage the habitat a little bit mm -hmm. so i you know scythe a bit here and you know um but i just find plants that would like to live in those areas i see how they are in the world and bring them to where they might like to live mm -hmm. um and there's one tiny little triangle i mean it's hardly I would say 15 foot across one way and 20 foot across the other makes up this tiny little triangle and it's formed itself into the most perfect little miniature heath with the little heath plants and some dog lichens and there's some tiny little birch trees coming through and it's just been fascinating to watch it because it was some bare land that was scraped mm. um you know when I was had had to make this sort of you know, like channel for a river going through and so it went from this bare land into this little heath, and now it's got little saplings. And, um, you know, in, in five years' time, it might be completely different. It might be a tiny miniature woodland. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. And do you think as well that's why we have so many nettles and docks? Because the land is, like, literally trying to say, hey, we're trying to fix the ground. That's why we have so much of these herbs. Yeah. And and those are the same plants that are very often used to detox. You know, if you look at human health, you know, mm. yellow dock, you know, acts on the liver and it sort of 
you know, it's a really cleansing herb. You know, if somebody has acne or other signs of sort of congested skin, you give them dock in a herbal mix. You know, it's a detoxifier. Mm-hmm. Um, thistle is a detox. Thistle's a liver detox. You know, milk thistle, arti- you know, artichoke, all of the thistles have an action of, de- you know, cleansing the liver. Mm-hmm. You know, nettle is a blood tonic, you know. So these are plants that no- that detoxify the land. Mm-hmm. The spoiled land or the degraded land, they detoxify it back and then open it up so that the richness can come back and with the richness, the diversity. Mm. Yeah. And their medicine is good for us too. It's all there, isn't it? Yeah, well. And and our wildflowers as well, do you feel like for anybody who'd like to forage them, how endangered are, are they kind of? You know, the well, that hugely varies from place to place. And, you know, one of the things about um, foragers and people who like to forage is that as you start to get to know nature plant by plant, yeah, and you start to recognize them and recognize them again, and then you know them, and then, then you know, you start to fall in love with it. You know, you fall in love with this landscape. Um, even if it's just the tiniest little landscape, you know, that tiny little triangle of heath or a little spot under a hedge along the side of a path. or And, um, you know, so foragers become these stewards of nature. They're the ones that really know what's there and what isn't. Mm. So in some parts of the countryside, you might find, you know, um, some wildflowers in great abundance. In another place, you only find few. So you have to really look to your own, what's happening in your local vicinity, get to know your own area really, really well to know what's happening. You can't just make a rule which says, oh, pick only a third. Because what if you pick a third and then I pick a third and then someone else picks a third and it happened to be in a really rare plant. But you might find that that grows in abundance somewhere else and you wouldn't even want a third because, you know, you, you haven't got a family of 20 children. No. <laughs> not these days not these days yeah I saw loads of Herb Robert earlier and the dogs Violet and just all the little colours they're just so cute you know and they're all so different and tiny and just perfect you know mm. yeah. yeah so it depends where it is and you know and if you're if you're you know when you love foraging you also spend a lot of time um, redistributing seed and filling in the gaps in the hedges and <laughs> doing a little bit of shepherding, you know, yeah. encouraging that landscape to renew. Would you go off into ditches now and plant trees? <laughs> I will, yes. You know, where, around where I live, you know, where I notice there's gaps in the hedges, you know, I'll find, you know, little hawthorn saplings and um, and go and put them back in and, you know, and hope that they'll make it. Unfortunately, with hedges, you know, they're, they're all victims, these bloody mechanical flailing machines nowadays. You know, people don't know how to cut a hedge or lay a hedge anymore. They just drive along with these machines that just literally split the wood and batter them. And that's just, um, you know, that really is assault or assault on the countryside. You know, they should be stopped. We should be standing in front of those machines going, no further. You know, because a lot of fruit bears on last year's wood, 
you know, the new shoots from this year are the wood for next year's fruit. And when you just smash everything off, you, you know, you stop them flowering, you stop them fruiting, you reduce the food for the birds, you reduce the food for foragers. You know, you create these hedges with great gaps that your livestock and your sheep can get through because they're not actually being, you know, looked looked after and tended to. And then eventually people get fed up with these woody, gappy hedges that don't flower or fruit, and they just then take them out completely and replace them with barbed wire. Mm. So unnecessary. Yeah. And so often in the in the in the name of being tidy, making it look tidy. Mm. I know. <laughs> Where in nature was there ever a straight line? I ask you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I think the more we move back there, though, we're kind of drawn to it. Um, it's really funny. I had a friend the other day. I just thought it was really interesting, you know. Um, and I presume you're like in nature every day in the soil and you probably end up like our, our, our biomes and like we become like it. Um, but I had a friend the other day and she lives in a city and she came up to me for a hug and she said she was sniffing my shoulder, you know, I kept sniffing and sniffing. She's like, you really smell like something. I don't know. And I was like, well, I haven't worn perfume in years. She's like, I don't know. It's like carrots or <laughs> but I'd say there was like seed smells <laughs> coming out my skin, you know, our manure. I don't know. <laughs> but I just thought it was so lovely that you know, we are actually drawn back to it, that messy, that wild, it's just being comfortable in it. And I think that fear needs to dissipate. Um, mm -hmm. I think we're getting more curious about it. And I do. And I, I always, you know, I always say when I'm teaching people, I always say, look, you know, if you can tell the difference between a cabbage and a lettuce, you have the mental power to do this. Yeah. Because oh. if you've never seen a cabbage and a lettuce and you just read about them in a book, well, you know, you've got these, they're both round, that's about the size of a sort of small basketball, and they've both got leaves that wrap around the other leaves, forming a dense heart, and the outer leaves are sometimes a bit curly around the edges, and you, know, you can see the veins through them. And one's a bit darker green than the other. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a clue what I was talking about, but if I show you the difference between a cabbage and a lettuce, you'll remember and you'll know. And it's the same with the plants, or the wild plants. Mm, it's really you know? and it's always much better to go out with somebody who you who can show you because it's much you know we remember it more easily that way mm -hmm. and what do you think is the reason why our memory holds when we're doing that well i think you know from an evolutionary point of view to remember where your food comes from is a pretty good evolutionary tactic mm. yeah and you never forget where you found food. <laughs> you know, certainly not the sort of the trophy things, you know, like that magnificent chicken of the woods. You wouldn't forget which tree that was on now, would you? Mm. You know. And um, I mean, you can't really say the same thing about a supermarket, can you? Yeah. I mean, I've sort of, I mind you, I haven't been to one for so long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to say you wouldn't forget where, where something was in the supermarket, but um yeah, that's a strange experience. I always wondered if you took if you you know, given that a supermarket is basically a box, you know, if you could take the lid off the top and then 
had some sort of magical thing that analysed how much sugar content was in all the food there and then just poured in sugar. I wonder how high it, up it would come. I'd say the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> Massive. I um, mean, you do, when you're eating wild foods, develop a taste away from sugar. You do start to prefer these, you know, the, the, the more natural, the more the more bitter, the more hotter, the more interesting flavours. Like your taste buds are changing. Yeah, because a lot of people, you know, I mean, with babies, you have to, you know, they've got an inbuilt defence mechanism to stop them getting poisoned by preferring sweet things over savoury things. Mm -hmm. So you have to teach them to eat bitter things. But they'll learn very easily. Amy, who's doing the Wild Biome Project, um, is weaning her baby who's five and a half months onto um, creamed nettle and creamed hogweed, and she's loving it. Um, but, you know, the, the mistake people make sometimes is that when their baby goes, hmm, I'm not sure about this, the first time it tastes it, they go, oh, you poor thing, immediately give it some very baby food. Mm. And then you have, you know, people growing up with sort of adult baby, adults with baby palates. Mm. Very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And I think I think we forget that we're actually animals and part of that kingdom and stuff, you know. I think we totally have desensitized from it, you know. And any if I do when I do go to the supermarket when I walk in, I'm just like, whoa, like the lights, the noise. I'm just like, what is this place? I think the more you leave it, it's harder, so much harder to go back. I have to like plan my visit there, you know to really plan it and you know the funny thing as well anytime I go like there's one or two assistants and they'll always say oh that's such a healthy shopper oh my god you're the healthiest and I'm like but that's what food is I'm like what is everybody eating you know you know that's food that's real food you know yeah so yeah what is your favorite foraged food for now that's a bit like asking who's my favorite child <laughs> I mean, at this time of year, I particularly love the young hogweed shoots, common hogweed, yeah. fried up till they're sort of crispy. But, um, oh, just everything at the moment. I mean, for lunch, I had a salad with chickweed and um, those lovely little celery-like ground elder shoots um, with some Alexander's leaf and a little bit of wild celery and some purslane and a little bit of gorse flour mm. with a dressing that was made of a homemade gooseberry, wild gooseberry vinegar with a tiny little bit of pepper dulse and a tiny bit of honey. And um, yeah, it was delicious. Yummy. Sounds oh, and um, some wild garlic stems, of course. Yum. Yeah. Uh, there's just yeah this is the this is the season of salads and it was so funny like a couple of months ago i think there was a salad shortage in the shops and things because um and um, people were talking about oh yeah there's a salad shortage and i was like well no i don't think so <laughs> we've been able to pick salads since february well i know you're doing great work would you like to share um i don't know any final advice for anybody who would love to rekindle that nature connection? Yeah, just just go and do it. Um, learn one new plant a week so it doesn't feel too overwhelming. 
you know, choose a new plant, start on a Sunday and dedicate your week to one plant. By the end of two years, you're going to know over 100 species. Mm. And, um, you know, by the time you're 60, you'll know a few more. (laughs) (laughs) Fab. And do you want to share anything about your work or the project before we... Just, um, you know, if anybody's, um, you know, would like to read my book, it's called The Wilderness Cure by Mo Wilde. Mm-hmm. And published by Simon and Schuster, and with the project, the Wild Biome project, we'll be finishing in June, and the results will be out in about August, September, and on and aired on the um, Radio Four Food Program, and then we're hoping to publish a clinical study. Um, in the meantime, we have been um, fundraising because I'm not attached to a university or research body and paying for all the blood tests and you know and people to do the statistical analysis all cost money mm-hmm. so we do have um a call out for funding and it's just gofundme forward slash wild biome so um if anybody would like to donate the price of a cup of coffee i would be really grateful yes super i'll link that up as well um, it's, it's just amazing I'm just so in admiration of all the people and all the recipes. It's just like, yes, you know. And yeah, I know we we have a um, collective, we set up a collective Instagram handle to that we each of us does about two days, um, but just make sure everything gets sort of shared, which is at Wild Biome Project on Instagram. And um, yeah, it's really lovely seeing what everybody's doing. But, you know, there are things where we sort of drift towards the same you know, we're starting to use sort of similar materials and quite a lot of people are gravitating to sort of one big meal a day and then sort of snacking on either side. And a friend of mine, Craig, said, is, there, just, is it just me or is everybody licking their plates? And it's like, oh, yeah, we're all licking our plates. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. At least the non-bearded ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. And other than that, I would just say to people, love life. It's not it's it's not very long and it's the only one you've got, you know, so find, you know, find your joy. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. And folks, if you enjoyed this episode, please give it a share. I link up the Wild Biome Project in the notes. And if you can help me on my mission with the bees, please go on to patreon.com slash catch caught. And I'll talk to you all very soon. Sloan.